0: You know, before uh, we put all the songs on PowerPoint, it was a lot easier when you got up and first started to preach because the first thing you could say is, okay, when you finish with your songbooks and you get everything all settled out, turn in your Bibles. And now I don't even have any time to prepare up here because nobody's marking your songbooks for the invitation song. So uh, turn in your Bibles uh, to the Book of Romans and just stick your bookmark in there somewhere. Uh, we uh, Brother Sharp asked me this evening at said, are you really going to cover... The first eight chapters of Romans. Uh, and I was tempted to say, no, I'm going to do the first uh, 12. The, we are going to look at the substance of uh, uh, really the first five chapters or so of Romans. And so uh, we'll jump around a little bit within those chapters. And so uh, if you'll mark your uh, Bible, you'll be prepared as we get to that point. Uh, I bid you a pleasant good evening. Uh, it's Monday. If your Mondays are like most Mondays, you're probably thinking, man, I, have, I deserve a gold star for getting here tonight, and uh, you probably do. I appreciate that you are here. Uh, I know how gospel meetings are. I know there are a lot of you that are uh, folks still raising your kids, and uh, school's about to start, and you're going 100 different directions, and you're probably tired and, and mad at least at one of the kids, if not two or three of them. Uh, and they're probably mad back at you, and so here you are, uh, and uh, I appreciate that you're here. I hope that it, uh, our study will be of some benefit to you, and it's an encouragement to me uh, that uh, you're supporting the meeting uh, the way that you are. So thank you for being here tonight, uh, and uh, would ask you to give your attention to the things that we want to talk about. Uh, I am not a PowerPoint guy. Uh, I, I use it occasionally at home when I'm teaching class. I rarely use it when I preach. And so, uh, I'm going to try this this evening, and uh, uh, if I just give up on it halfway through, just stay with me, not with this, okay? So, I, I want to begin by asking you a series of questions. So see, this is already messed up from what I was uh, expecting it to do. And I want you to be honest, okay, and are the rules about the questions. Uh, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Uh, uh, in in answer to the question. But I don't want you to look around at anybody else uh, to see what their answers are. And when you hear the questions, I promise you, you're going to be tempted. I know I've seen this happen before. Um, How many of you, by show of hands, want to go to heaven when you die? Okay? Put your hands down. How many of you feel pretty good about your chances of going to heaven? When you die, okay? Less hands up. Here's the question: How many of us are sure? Okay. Now, this is what just happened. It happens every time. One or two people raise their hand, and then the, somebody else over here catches out of the corner of their eye and go, "Well, if they're sure." Uh. <laughs> And it starts off with just one or two, and by the time it's done, there's maybe a half dozen, and that's usually about it. That's a hard question for Christians to deal with. It's a hard question for our brethren to deal with. And I think there's some reasons that that's a hard question to deal with. Uh, you can look at people in the Scriptures. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes a lot about the anticipation of the end of his life, and you see it especially in a few of his epistles where he's getting close to the end of his life. And and some of the things that he says about his own future are quite impressive. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul offers these statements. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. To the Philippian brethren, he wrote these words, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I choose I cannot tell I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better nevertheless to remain in the flesh, is more needful for you. And to the Corinthians, he offered these words. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen, the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal, we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. You know, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, are are you sure what's going to happen to you when you die? You you read those writings. There's no question in his mind what's going to happen to him. And and I think we look at that and say, well, yeah, but it's the Apostle Paul. I mean, if anybody's going to be certain of his salvation, surely it's the Apostle Paul. And don't expect me to have the same kind of confidence that Paul had. He could be sure he was the Apostle Paul. Let me ask you something. You ever kill anybody? You, you ever break into somebody's house, drag them out, carry them off to prison, stand in witness against them uh, uh, to the point that hopefully they are put to death simply because of their convictions? You, you ever done that? Paul describes himself as he looks at his history and those things Paul did before he became a Christian describes himself before Lord, the Lord is a blasphemer, a persecutor. An injurious man, a violent aggressor. And, and you start looking at, well, these are the things that Paul did, and yet Paul was sure he was going to go to heaven. Maybe we ought to reevaluate. You're raising your kids, and we're going to talk about this a little bit tomorrow night. And, and, and you're trying to, hopefully, what you're trying to do as a parent is prepare your kids to go back to God. That's why He gave them to us. Uh If you can't offer your kids some assurance, hey, what I'm going to teach you and what I'm trying to instill in you as a parent as you grow up, this is the key to salvation and you know what's going to happen to you. If you can't offer them some assurance, why would they listen to you? You try to talk to your friends about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we tell them, you know... The Lord said, he that believes and is baptized has a pretty good shot at getting to heaven when he dies. But but you tell me, if if we're trying to talk to people about the gospel and at the same time, we can't answer this question with any degree of confidence or certainty, just how effective are we really going to be? I'm going to tell you, folks, I, I think God's people... Ought to be certain about what's going to happen to us when we die, and, and I don't believe that as a result of some kind of just uh, overconfidence or lack of understanding of the scriptures. I believe that this is something God expects us to to have this kind of confidence, and I understand how hard it is. Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven. Wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There's a lot of folks going in that, that way. And, and, and straight or difficult is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life. And there are few that find it. And we'll look at ourselves and say, but this, I just don't think I... I, I I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to be one of the few. So that's what I want to talk with you about. And, and I think that that's what the book of Romans is addressing to us. So I, I want to do this by examining two different questions. Because I think people come at this question from two different angles. Are, are you sure you're going to be saved? Do, do you know what's going to happen to you? And, and I think for a lot of people, the idea of salvation is, is it, it's just a very difficult thing. That, that it, Going to heaven is just going to be hard, maybe too hard. I, a friend of mine that worships with us at home, years ago, we were out fishing one day, and we were talking about this, that, and the other. We, we were talking about our convictions. We were talking about serving the Lord. And, and he made this observation to me. And, and this is the statement that he made. You know, he said, Russ, I really do. I try to serve the Lord. But there are days when I just think it's just, it's just too hard. I, I, I just don't know that I can ever be good enough to go to heaven. Let me ask you, do you feel that way ever? That I just don't think I could ever be good enough? You know, that was a question, folks, not rhetorical. I know my answer. I'm asking for years. Do you feel that way ever? That I'm not going to ever be good enough? And the reality is, nobody's going to be good enough. Salvation is not something that is based upon all the goodness in my life. And that, I think, is the key. Turn turn over to Romans chapter 7. I'm going to start kind of in a in a difficult part of Romans, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I don't have the, uh, any intention of going through and trying to chart out the entire argument. Romans is actually pretty simple uh, in complicated language. Everybody's guilty. God offers the only way of saving us so you can take God's righteousness or not take it at all. That's the argument of, of the first uh, really 11 chapters of Romans, and the Jews didn't get it. That's, that's kind of what Paul says. But he goes through some uh, rather lawyer-esque argumentation to get there. And when he gets to chapter 7, I believe in its context he's probably talking about his life before he became a Christian. Now, this is subject to some debate, but I think that that's what's going on in this immediate context. And what he begins to describe here is the common plight of people who are living under a law. Where we have a standard that we are trying to attain to and that innocence is found by attaining to the standard. So listen to what Paul says. Tell me if you don't get this. I'm reading from the New King James, by the way, and the version you're reading makes some difference in this passage. Romans chapter 7, and verse 14, Paul says, I know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. What I'm doing I do not understand. What I will to do, that I do not practice. What I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, To will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. The good that I will to do, I do not do. The evil that I will not to do, that I practice. If I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, I find then a law. And let me interrupt right here. I think when he says, I find a law, what he means is, I find a general truth. I find a principle that is consistently played out in my life. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin that's in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Let me ask you something, and and, and I really need your feedback here. Do, Do you understand that? Do you understand the argument? If you don't, I, I, please, I'm, I'm not going to elaborate for four weeks, but uh, this is important to get. Do you get it, or, or are you kind of fuzzy on it? You're just not going to answer, are you? The only people that are answering are the ones that get it. Everybody else is going, I'm not going to admit it. Okay? They're the same ones that didn't raise your hand until everybody else did about the sure question. Let, let me put it this way. I think Paul's describing the process of temptation as it, as it, as it bears out in our life, Practically. We know what's right, we want to do what's right, but very often we find ourselves failing at that. Now that, that's kind of the argument that he's making. And I'll tell you a good way to illustrate it, uh, several of you brought peaches, we had peach pie tonight, yeah, I, I like peaches. I'm going to tell you what I like even better than this, and if we haven't eaten together this week, get this now, okay? <laughs> My wife makes the best chocolate chip cookies in the world. And uh, about every uh, six months or so, uh, I go off of sweets. I just, it, it's not because I'm trying to lose weight or diabetic. I just, just as a, a discipline thing, it helps me. And so I'll go for about six months and, and I don't eat any, any sweets no cookies, cake, candy. I know that's stupid, but it is what I do. It never fails that the second week, about the time I'm over the withdrawal part, I'll come home one day and I'll open the door, and what hits me is the smell of chocolate chip cookies. And I walk in, and the counter is covered with cooling racks with these big old massive chocolate chip cookies. And and what's even more tempting is on the other counter is a big bowl of chocolate chip cookie dough. And I just walk right through the kitchen, madder than fire at my wife. You know I can't eat these right now. Well, I'm sorry. This is happening. This is happening. But you know I'm not eating these right now. Well, I'm sorry. And I walk off and I am bound and determined I am not going to eat that chocolate chip cookie for about five minutes. (laughs) Because the smell gets to you and the sound gets to you and the, the imagination gets to you. Now, I've got a standard I'm trying to uphold I know that's what's right. I know that's what my aim is. I am dedicated to it. I am determined. And then I turn around and eat a chocolate chip cookie. Do you ever do that with temptation and sin? And and I believe that's what Paul's describing here. And, And his point in the context is the problem's not with the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with the standard God has given us. The problem that we find is that we don't keep the standard. And that's problematic if we start thinking of ourselves as never being good enough to go to heaven. Because the reality is what Paul describes is what every man deals with. And what God would have us to understand and part of the argument of Romans is that the idea of innocence, and the word in Romans is justification. Justification simply means to be pronounced innocent. The idea of justification or innocence can only come in two ways. You're either perfect, you never sin. If you never sin, then you're innocent. And so you stand innocent before the judge. Now the only other way is for some way or another that guilt to be taken away, to be pronounced innocent by the judge. And one of the things that Paul is arguing as you go through Romans and if you go back to chapter 4, he uses Abraham as an illustration of this, That God does not consider us innocent because we're perfect. And so he says in Romans 4 and verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? If Abraham were justified, pronounced innocent by his works, by all the good things that he did, then he has something of which to boast, but not before God. In other words, God wouldn't have had anything to do with Abraham's innocence. It would have all been an issue of Abraham's goodness. But that's not what he found. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. The the point is that Abraham discovered, and, and we can go all the way back to the Old Testament and realize that Nobody stands innocent before God because of how good they are. Now, now, I'm going to tell you something that I have seen in my life. I grew up, pardon the phrase, in the church. Uh, many of you know my folks, uh, very godly people. My, my grandparents on both sides of my family were were Christians, very godly people. Uh, most of my aunts and uncles have been Christians, very godly people. I grew up in a family with all this wonderful influence. And I'm not talking about nominal. I'm talking about folks that were serious about it. And, and what I have seen is that very often those of us who are closely connected with, with churches of Christ or basically any fundamentalist type religious body, we put a lot of emphasis upon what we do. And, and with good reason. You, 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 you've got to be baptized. You, 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 have, to, you have to worship properly. You, you, You can't have instruments of music. You you have to sing. You have to sing with the Spirit and the understanding. Uh, We observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. We we go through the five acts of worship. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do that. And and the Bible says all that. I'm not discounting that. But I'm going to tell you what that does, it seems to me, in our mindset. is that it very often exposes us to the failures. And we know that, for instance, as I mentioned yesterday, that Maybe I'm impatient. Maybe that's one, one of the problems, one of the things I fight. My self-control, my quick temper is something I have to fight. And, and here's some day I, I lose my control. And uh, I say something I shouldn't say because I got angry about something. Okay, now here I have failed over here. And, but on the other hand, the other six days of the week, I did really good with my temper. And I think for some of us, we tend to think, well, you know, if I keep doing good and I get better, sooner or later, all those good things are going to outweigh those failures. You ever think that way? That, yeah, I've got my problems, but I do all these good things, and that's the way we phrase that. And I think as we grow up thinking about the stuff we have to do, we tend to think about salvation in terms of good versus bad works, and earning our salvation, and outweighing, making sure the scales on the good side, so that when we die, God's going to look at all the good stuff. Do you understand the flaw in that thinking? Keep your bookmark in Romans if you want to flip over to James chapter two. James makes an uh, a, a, almost an illustrative point when he's talking about uh, prejudice, talking about having the love of Christ with respect to persons. And in the midst of that, he makes this point in James chapter 2 and in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, uh, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. He who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. You understand what that means in our argument? All it takes is one sin. And and, and once I've committed one sin, you know where I stand before law? I have failed. I'm guilty. And nothing I can do will change that. I, I hear this illustrated sometimes, by by people talking about credit cards. You run up $10,000 worth of credit card debt, and and all of a sudden the bill collectors call you in, and and you get on the phone with them and say, hey, you know what, I've I've, I've really not done very well managing my finances, but I've been taking some classes, and I'm going to do better, and I tell you what, from now on, I'm never going to run up a bill that I don't pay. And they say, well, that's great. We'll leave you alone then, right? No, they're going to say, well, what about this $10,000 over here you still owe us? And, And that's the way that thinking in terms of loading up our life with good works to outweigh the bad, that's the way that works. We can do lots of good things and become very faithful disciples of the Lord. What about that failure over there? And that's problematic. The Jews very much had that perspective. Part of what Paul's arguing throughout the book of Romans is the Jews had confidence in themselves. If you flip over to chapter 9 uh, and into chapter 9 and 10, Paul's making this argument about the Jewish mindset. Verse 30 of chapter 9, "...what shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness?" has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. Did you notice the Jews are always asking Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Well, in their thinking, "If, if I'll get the right ones, if I'll get the big ones, then everything else is okay, and that'll take care of the small ones. And the problem is that what we realize is we stand guilty before God. And if that's the way you think about salvation then I guarantee you, you're going to look at your life and go, man, this is just really hard. But here's the solution. The reality is because God placed us under a law, and He makes this argument in Galatians 3, he makes this argument in Romans. Because God placed us under a law, what we have learned is that we are miserable failures. Romans chapter 3. All are convicted of guilt before God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it really doesn't matter if in chapter 1, you're a Gentile who never had the the revealed law, or in chapter 2 and 3, you're a Jew and understood what you were supposed to do. What you realize eventually is, I have failed before God, and, and, and I don't have a way to fix that. And so what God has done is to provide justification, and God is the power. Not my goodness, not my works, not my perfection. God is the power. So back up to chapter 3, which is really kind of the essence of the argument, beginning in verse uh, 21 or 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now the righteousness of God, the right way of saving us, is, is revealed apart from the law, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, made innocent, freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by His blood. Now this is the part of the Gospel that we all know, that we all appreciate. I stand innocent before God because Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and took the punishment. And were it not for God's grace in providing that. And that's the concept of grace. This is the disposition of God toward us. Knowing that we were miserable failures and we had no hope separate from what He has done, God has made provision. You read Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, and He makes the point that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, and now we're made alive by God through His grace provided in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. Uh, Among our brethren... I recognize that uh, e- even, even some, uh, some of our brothers and sisters are, are, are a bit cautious about putting too much emphasis upon the grace of God. Now and I understand that. Calvinism has done terrible injustice to the concept of God's favor for us. But, but I'm going to tell you something. We had better come to the appreciation that the only way we're going to go to heaven is because Jesus Christ died for us and God forgave us. And we can start today and never sin again, ever. And we will deserve to go to hell. Salvation would be terribly hard. In fact, salvation would be too hard were it not for the disposition of God, the offer, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, Titus chapter 2. If it weren't for what God has done for us, we'd have no hope. Because of what He has done for us, I'm going to tell you something. We need to get out of this mindset that says, I'll never be good enough. No, we won't. And God's taking care of that. Now, that's the big part of the lesson. I know if you're looking at your watch, you're thinking, whew, that's just point one." Well... <laughs> there's another side to this, and, 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 and this side of, of the way people look at salvation, I think, is what we very often come into conflict with as we talk to our religious friends. There are a lot of people that, that believe that, that salvation is just really, really easy. They would put all the emphasis upon... God's doing. It it is the the practical manifestation of real Calvinism that salvation is God's doing. It is all God's doing. I can't do anything to ever merit my salvation. It's God who creates faith. It's God who changes the heart. It's God who does this. It's God who does that. And, and, And really, as long as I'm honest and sincere, it doesn't really matter what I believe or do. God does all the saving. And that's a real appealing doctrine, except that the scriptures don't necessarily coincide with that mindset. You know, the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, very often we're so busy quoting Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 that, that we fail to appreciate that in chapter 4 that in verse 40 of the same sermon, at the end of the sermon, it says that Peter exhorted them with many other words, saying, The old version says, save yourselves or be saved. You know, that's demanding something of them. Uh, Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And, And there are a lot of people that don't like that point because what that argues is you can determine whether you're going to go to heaven or not. Well, wait a minute, I thought you just said it was an issue of God's grace. Yes, it is an issue of God's grace. But the reality is, it's not only an issue of God's grace. What God expects of us is, 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 is faith. That, that the innocence that God offers to us is not limited to what God does. Go back to chapter 3, where we just read a moment ago, beginning of verse 21, the righteousness of God apart from law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe. There is no difference. Do you appreciate that nobody can have faith for you? You, you young people, I don't know how much you're able to keep up with this. I recognize that this is, you may think of it as very technical. It's actually very fundamental stuff. But, but I want you to understand something that you have to grapple with as your parents are raising you, and especially those of you here who are a little bit older, teenagers, early 20s. As much as your parents would like to have faith for you, I would love to do this for my girls. No, nobody can decide that they trust God for you. you. Your parents can't have faith for you. They can do everything to try to encourage your faith, but they can't do that. Only you do that. And, and that's an important consideration that faith is our responsibility and while much of the religious world looks at faith as something separate from any kind of work, the reality is faith is something we do. Faith is a work. Faith is something that we exercise. Faith is something that we weigh. John chapter 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him, well, what brings about belief? Well, I have to look at the evidence and I have to weigh it and I have to reason through it and I have to decide whether it's credible in my mind. And then I have to decide whether I'm going to take it and give my entire life to serving God because I find the evidence credible. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. He that comes to Him must believe that He is and it is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And that's the rub for much of the religious world. It's what it does is demand something of us. There's a lot of folks. I, I, we, we, live in a little, we live in a little community outside of Beaumont, Lumberton. About uh, probably now 12,000, 15,000 people. Little school. We've been there a long time. We know a lot of the folks in town, know the families that are the big shots in town, you know, the big, the big fish in that little bitty pond, uh, and know the administrators, know the school board members, and... And because we've known these people for a long time, uh, uh, we we get included in their Facebook posts and all this stuff. And and it it, it never ceases to amaze me that some of these people give themselves out to be very religious people. I mean, one day they'll have something on the Internet about uh, the Lord is my shepherd and how, you know, some passage, some quote, some picture of them at church. And then the next post, they're at uh, the... They're at the Guadalupe River running around with next to no clothes on chugging beer with all with their buddies and having a big old time. And, and I look at that and I think, how can you have this mindset about God and live like this? And I I'm going to tell you what the answer to that is. It's this belief that well, God knows my heart. God's a good God. He doesn't want to punish anyone, and I'm honest about that, and I'm sincere, and He's going to save me. I'm going to tell you something that's hard to deal with when you're talking to people about the gospel, and that is that that faith is a lot more than just accepting that God is. You know, for some people, the concept of belief or faith is, is kind of the same concept as people who believe that Bigfoot exists. You know, oh, I accept that it's true. Have you ever seen him? No. Uh, I know some people think they've seen him, by the way. Uh, have you ever seen him? No, no. But but I I believe he exists. Or I believe that there are aliens, you know, living among us. Or that Elvis Presley alive and well, working at a gas station in North Arkansas somewhere, you know. There are people that accept a lot of things as true, and they, they put the concept of biblical faith In that same category. I accept that Jesus lived. I accept that God is. I accept that He died for us. And that's faith. But the reality is, you look at just a fundamental definition of the term. W.E. Vine is not a... uh, I mean, he's a a good etymologist, but he's not the greatest scholar that ever lived. But but his definition of faith is a, a firm persuasion, a conviction based on hearing. And as you read through the Bible, what you will find is... There are some elements to that concept. The, the, the first one is uh, a conviction that acknowledges God's revelation. And, and the second one is that that conviction results in a relationship with God where we give ourselves to His will. And, and the third one is that we live in such a way that manifests that we trust Him. And you think, well, that's all technical. No, it's the same thing that we have when we trust anybody. Yeah, yeah. If, if I were to get Jacob, I'd be, I've known Jacob's family, known his family for a long time, but I don't know him very well. If I were to get him up here and say, "I want you to, uh, I want you to stand right here," I'm not going to ask you to do this because I'm going to get you to stand right here. I'm going to stand right behind you, and I want you to fall backwards, and I'm going to catch you. Do you believe me? And he would say, "Yes." Uh, Does he have faith in me? Only if he falls. You know, it's one thing to acknowledge something is real. It's something totally different to act as a result of it. Turn over to to the 23rd Psalm. This is one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. You see it in stores everywhere. You see it on the walls of people's houses. And and people say, this is a wonderful psalm about faith. But it's a psalm about following. And faith and following go hand in hand. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... He makes me to lie down in green pastures. How did I get to those green pastures? I followed the shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Do you see the theme that's developing? I'm going wherever He's going. I'm doing whatever He's asking me to do. Verse 4 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and that's all very poetic imagery, but the point is on both sides of me, I'm about to die. There are things about to kill me. I'm a sheep. There's wolves all around me. And even if the even if the shepherd walks me right through the middle of them, I'll fear no evil. You're with me. You, your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. How many, wants to, how many people want to sit down and eat with all your enemies around you? And the picture is: all your enemies around you ready to kill you. And yet, because my shepherd is there, I'll go where He wants me to go, I'll do what He wants me to do, whatever He asks me to do, because I trust that He's going to take care of me. I will fall all day and let Him catch me, because I trust Him. And and, and so when you take this concept and apply it to this mindset that I really don't have to do anything, salvation is all God's doing, that kind of throws a wrench in the works, because what faith demands is that I've got to do something. And for those of you, again, young people whose parents have raised you and they're godly people and you go to church all the time, I want you to understand something. That doesn't account for diddly until you decide you're going to serve the Lord. And it is the demand that God makes of us, whether that faith is manifested in initial obedience, in in repenting, in confessing your faith publicly and being baptized, whether it... Rather, it manifests itself in our ongoing service, the, the following the Lord wherever He asks us to follow, the worshiping the way that He wants to worship. You know, the, the kicker is Jesus just asks us to do things sometimes we don't particularly like. And that's when faith is really manifested. I trust Him, and I'm going to do what He wants me to do, even though it's not what I would rather do. And so, this idea that God's grace is all there is, and I don't have to do anything, and God's going to save everybody, that's just not biblical. The reality is, salvation's not nearly that easy. Now, let's go back to our initial question. At this point, you're probably thinking, okay, we've got to be getting close to the end, it's five minutes to eight. Yes, we are. We're going to go back to the initial question. The initial question is, are you sure you're going to be saved? And and, and I think the way you answer this question is that you appreciate the balance in these two concepts. That we can't be saved without God having done something. Because we can't deal with our own guilt, we can't get rid of our own sins, we can't undo what we have done, we can't outweigh the negatives with the positives... And were it not for the grace of God and the provision that He made of a perfect sacrifice, we would have no hope. But at the same time, we have to do something. We have to give ourselves to to His service. We have to follow Him. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And so what we come to appreciate is when we realize that we need God's grace and at the same time we have to manifest our faith Now salvation becomes something that is uh, not only attainable, but realistic. Something you can have your confidence in. And and I think for some reason or the other, we have a problem with this balance. Our job, folks, and in fact, uh, before I make this observation, turn back to to Romans and look at chapter 5, and look at verses 1 and 2, because this is kind of the practical conclusion that Paul makes of this argument. Therefore, having been justified, pronounced innocent, by faith, by my trust in God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory of God. We've got to have what God did. We've got to do something for ourselves. And the result of that is we can stand confident that God's going to save us. Now, here's the application. We got a big job. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five and verse forty-eight says, "I want you to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect." We can't look at the grace part and go, "Well, I can slack off, and God's grace is going to cover me." Read uh, the end of Romans chapter five, where Paul starts talking about, "Do I, you know, do, do I sin all the more that grace may abound?" The more I sin, the greater the grace of God. The more I sin, the greater the forgiveness of God. To God be the glory. Look at all these sins He has forgiven, and I have been saved, and it's all because of the power of God. Paul goes into chapter 6 and he says, God forbid that you think that way. You died to sin when you were baptized, and when you die to something, you don't do it anymore. So our job is to try to be perfect. 1 Peter chapter 1. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And and if you're thinking the way we started, you're going, I can't ever be perfect. No. You're not ever going to be perfect. And neither am I. But my job is to try to be. And, And then, we need to have some confidence in the promises of God. I think this is the challenge for us. How could God ever save me with all I've done? How could God still be merciful to me? I'm trying to, to, to be godly, but you kind of default to that Romans 7, the things that I know I do should do, I don't do. And I think even for those of us who are Christians, that characterizes our life very often. And we feel so overwhelmed by that guilt, we think there's just no way. And the reality is, God promises If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one with another. In the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son cleanses us from all sins. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many times does the Lord have to tell us, I'll take care of you? I don't know if you knew Robert Turner. Some of you might know the name. Some of you might have known him. He was a, a Texas preacher, which means that he's just way up there high. You know, you've got Paul, Peter, the lesser apostles, and Robert Turner, okay? Uh, I got to study Romans with Robert Turner. And Robert Turner offered me a little chart that I have remembered for a long time, and it helps me to appreciate this. In fact, It helps us to understand how God wants us to understand this. And and the point of the chart is that the reason Jesus died is so that we can serve with some confidence. And the way He does that is this. Under the old law, if you look in Exodus chapter 20, you look at the Ten Commandments, and I've just put three of them up here, God God offers a standard. Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, uh, thou shalt not covet or steal, okay? And, and, and under that law, if you kept those laws perfectly, you were innocent, right? The problem is, and this is what James said in James chapter 2, and the point we've been making, you fall short one time, and now you're a transgressor before the law. You stand guilty before God. I want you to notice what Jesus does in the, what we think of as the new law. You go to the Sermon on the Mount, which we referred to yesterday, and Jesus, you remember the section where Jesus tells them your, your righteousness is going to have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? You remember that section? Just shake your head yes, we're nearly done, okay? You know, what He does then is, is He says, now here's some things that you've been taught. Some of these are perversions of the law. Uh, you, you, you have heard uh, that, that thou shalt do no murder and whoever's guilty of the law, but But instead, Jesus raises the standard. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, you can't can't even hate anybody. It's what's in your heart. You've heard that it said, if if, if, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks after a woman, whoever looks on a woman to commit adultery has already committed adultery in his heart. Uh, And the reality is, it's a whole lot easier to not kill somebody than it is to not hate them. And and it's a whole lot easier to avoid physical adultery than it is to avoid lust. And and it's a whole lot easier not to steal something than it is if somebody wants something from you. If they take your coat, you give them your cloak also. The, 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 The law goes from what you do to who you are. Do you see that? And Peter makes the point in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem conference uh, conference in verse 10 that none of us, our fathers included, have kept the burden of the old law. No one stands innocent before God under the law. And so now, if God's holding us to a higher standard, where does that leave you and I? And so our job is to strive for that standard. And what God has done is offer forgiveness when we fail. It's not perfection that God's going to save us based on. It is forgiveness. And God has spent thousands of years recording His events and His deeds and the things that He's done and the things that he said and the promises that He has made and the fulfillment of such, so you and I can look at all this and go, you know, if God says, I'm going to do something, He does it. And if He says, when you were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, Scarcely for a righteous man, someone would die. Perhaps for a good man, someone would even die. But God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So so the question boils down to, folks, just how confident are you in that promise? In John chapter 14, in verse 1, Jesus told His apostles, I'm, I'm going away, but don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions, dwelling places, habitations. And I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go again to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do you believe that? then the next time somebody asks you, are you sure you're going to be saved when you die? Then your answer needs to be, yes, sir, I sure am. I am not the greatest person in the world. My wife will attest to that. But I'm going to tell you, folks, when I close my eyes for the last time on the face of this earth, I fully expect to open them, looking in the, in the bosom of Abraham upon my reward. Because God promised me, if I will try to serve Him faithfully, He'll save me. And we need that. We desperately need that. So, I offer those considerations for you to go and study Romans. And to walk away serving with some confidence because of the God that we serve and the blessings He's provided. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's your part. Show your faith. Change the way you think. Turn and decide you're going to serve Him. You may not be perfect every day, but you're going to get up, you're going to confess your sins, and you're going to keep serving, and He's going to forgive them. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. Not because there's any grand power in the water, but because God says, this is what I've asked you to do to show your faith. It symbolizes what Christ did for you. You do that for me. And I tell you what, you do these things and I'll forgive you. And I'll keep on forgiving you as long as you keep coming back to me. And you can live your life with some confidence and we can be just like Paul and say I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand and I've fought the fight and I've finished the race and I've kept the faith and there is a crown laid up for me. If you need to fix your life, so you can live with that kind of confidence. We invite your response this evening while together we stand and while we sing.